not everything is enjoyable, but some things are not the thing is most. In one epistle, Shimon Kefa, a.k.a. Simon Peter, he's been talking in chapter 2 about submission, which isn't the funnest thing to read about. And the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about spousal submission. The um, maybe not the most um, popular thing these days, but let's look at it in First Kepha three one, chapter three verse one. I'm going to begin reading. It says, "In the same way, wives submit to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not believe in the word, they will be won over by your conduct without your saying anything." This word begins with a phrase like. Similarly, when it's talks, uh, it says in the same way, similarly, in the same way, this links it to what he's been writing about. In the previous chapter, he was writing about um, the, the verses in chapter 2 conclude, and it's linked to chapter 3 in the same way, what he's been writing about. We learn in chapter 2, servants of subjection to civil authorities, to domestic authorities, and to the ultimate servant, the suffering servant. Messiah Yeshua, Yeshua of Nazareth, subjecting himself. He subjects, he's in submission. Messiah in subjecting himself for the sake of us, his flock. So just as submission is mentioned in chapter 2, and its application is not always easy, nor even, uh, even, even obvious exactly how to apply it on the surface, the same goes for the opening verses of chapter 3, which deals with spousal submission and spousal respect. Now, in this verse, where, in this verse where he says in the same way, wives, submit yourself to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not believe the word, they will be won over by your conduct without your saying anything. In a general sense, it does command wives to submit to their husbands. The submission is not as hierarchical, however, as some people might be tempted to think. Yeshua was subject both, or to whom was Yeshua subject? Both to his parents and to God. And believers are still commanded to be subject to, un, to governing authorities, even when they are not themselves believing, those governing authorities. Thus, the command of wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply inferior personhood or inferior spirituality or lesser importance. And we must keep in mind who is at the top of the, for lack of a better word, chain of command. That's not really the best way, but that's the best thing I can think of saying right now. We cannot emphasize strong enough that Hashem is at the top of the chain of command. We cannot emphasize submission to human authorities or to anything on this earth while ignoring the fact that the ultimate head is Hashem. Just as those there were supposed followers of God who let the will of the Nazis in World War II, let that take precedence over the will of God. Just as they were absolutely wrong, we would be absolutely wrong to let any little or big domestic holocausts to make us prioritize a husband's will over God's, or a boss's will over God's, or, or a local govern, government authority's will over God's. 
By no means should a wife, whether her husband is a believer or not, be expected to discontinue Messianic Jewish activities, for example, for their husband's sake. However, no one should allow their, the freedom and Messiah, which is an expression you hear a lot, sometimes used properly and sometimes abused, no one should use their freedom in Messiah to make them feel superior to any authority, to their husband or any other authority. But why at least, from Kepha's perspective, is a wife's submission to her husband important? It's so that a wife, and his emphasis here, the context of the wife, the context of the wife, so that her wife may by, it says, her patient, by her patience, gain her husband for the kingdom of God. He says, so that may, they may, if some of them do not believe the word, they will be won over by your conduct without your saying anything. This outreach of a nonverbal sort, it's what some would call lifestyle evangelism. Well, this application can be in the home for some people. It literally hits you right where you live. There are many Messianic Jewish women who may have non-believing husbands. And of course, non-believing, I know, is a different context, too. Sometimes it means someone's totally irreligious. Sometimes they're just not so sure about Yeshua. So there's various contexts for it. But um, they may desire their husbands become more observant. And that's a proper desire. But what kind of observance should they most seek from their husbands? Kepha in verse three, chapter 3, verse 2 says, As they see your respectful and pure behavior, it says. So the observance of the husbands, they're observing the pure and respectful behavior of their wives, their holy and fearful way of life. They'd be won over by being curious about Yeshua, the Yeshua they already know that their wives believe in, their spouses believe in, by their conduct without necessarily saying a word as they see your pure and respectful behavior. Then you can have an interested audience you can speak. Have you ever heard of someone saying like, you know, it's hard for me to hear what you're saying because your actions are speaking too loudly. <laughs> well, it's the opposite. Your actions should help to help to win you an audience. This is, of course, equally true for husbands who might have non-believing wives. The term translator, it says you're respectful and pure behavior. The translated variously is pure, chaste, holy. It means pure, free from moral defilement. It serves as another reminder, another reminder that the submission the Messiah expects of us must never go so far as to include obedience to demands to do something morally wrong. Someone who does something morally wrong in, in the name of submission is not engaged in the pure and respectful behavior, the morally pure behavior that Kepha is talking about. Kepha treats women as fully responsible moral agents before God and places submission to God above submission to anyone or anything else, any other authority. But the observing that he refers to in verse 2 opens with a sense of seeing, seeing this respectful and pure behavior. This behavior, it is an outreach opportunity, it can be, within the home. This behavior is inspired and determined by reverence for God. 
Verse 3, Kepha says, Your beauty should not consist in externals, such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. There's a focus here upon beauty, upon outward appearance, which, and some say, well, beauty is only skin deep. Of course, the joke was they said, beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness goes down to the bone, some people say. But um, as far as beauty is, that's just a little twist people put upon it, but beauty is only skin deep. And I think Kepha's point is that true beauty is not just skin deep, but it's primarily an internal matter. Some people put, put, place great emphasis, great store in their outward appearance and have sought a lot of attention being put to such matters as hairstyle, jewelry, dress. We think more of women, although it applies to men. I'm one, one of our aides where I work, educational assistants where I work, they have the, um, some of us older people, myself in the librarian, he has you know the, the genes that have the tears in them. That, um, um, I don't think a lot of things, if you get enough people to do certain things, they can be popular. But to them, that to certain people, that's important, the outward appearance of people put emphasis upon that. I mean, I wear a necktie, that has to do with outward appearance. But um, we should remember, people look at the outward appearance, what does Hashem look at? It looks at the heart. The, in the first book of Samuel, Shmuel 16.7, He's look, the prophet there is looking, trying to figure out who is Hashem's anointed. You know, the brother, the sons of the sons of Yeshai and the, the um, older ones, you know, grown strength. Some of them served in the army, very impressive. But Adonai said to Shmuel, don't pay attention to how he looks or how tall he is, because I rejected him. Adonai doesn't see the way humans see. Humans look at the outward appearance, but Adonai looks at the heart. So in the case of who was, who was the anointed one of Yeshai's sons, it was the last one you would have expected, the outward appearance. The, um, the youngest one was out helping you know, the family business with the sheep. The one who, the last one that his father would even think of showing as being the, the candidate. So we often put an emphasis upon, I've, I've been watching a program about, um, about Hitler um, I'm a history teacher, but um, and they, there's a lot of emphasis put upon his, his, you know, he had his arms crossed this way or anyone. Sometimes we can read too much into that. And um, despite his, however he looked, we say, oh, evil, he was able to fool in this context Lloyd George, a great British leader. So it's, God looks beyond the outward appearance. It's the condition or attitude of one's inner disposition which matters to Hashem. Women or men who are tempted to trust primarily in their outward adornment should contemplate in Isaiah 3, 3.18. says, on that day, Adonai will take away their finery, their anklets, medallions, and crescents, their pendants, bracelets, and veils, their headbands, armlets, sashes, perfume bottles, amulets, rings, and nose jewels, their fine dresses, wraps, shawls, handbags, gauze scarves, linen underclothes, turbans, and capes. Then there will be, instead of perfume, a stench, instead of a belt, a rope, instead of well-set hair, a shaved scalp, instead of a rich robe, a sackcloth shirt, skirt, excuse me, and a slave brand instead of beauty. Your men will, be, will fall by the sword and your warriors in battle. Her gates will lament, mourned, ravaged. She will sit on the ground. So when, um, that's the ultimate, when 
when you put everything in outward adornment, you know, the um, clothes like the man or say yes, yes to the dress or whatever, they're, um, they're dressed for success. That all has its place, but ultimately that'll perish. One other purpose which Kepha's teaching here might serve is the lessening of class distinctions within God's faith community, thus promoting harmony and releasing generosity that Yeshua commanded. In, the, in Matityahu, the first gospel, chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth, where moths and rust destroy and burglars break it and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. In, back in 1 Kepha 3, verse 4, it says, 3, 4, rather, let there be the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is of great value. In verse 3, Kepha told us the most crucial aspect of adornment is not external. Here he expounds upon the inner adornment. This inner character of the hidden person, the hidden man, the secret person, it could be rendered. It's cardiac. It's of the heart. So this hidden secret man is not visible in itself, but it's revealed through words and through deeds, through our actions, which reflect our inner attitudes. This hidden adornment is described by Kepha's imperishable how does he render exact? Imperishable or uncorrupting. Incorruptible. A word which he uses a number of times in this epistle. It describes freedom from decay or theft to which earthly treasures, treasures of external material kind, are all exposed. This is the hidden part of man in which Rav Shaul talks about in Romans 7. Rav Shaul talks about in, in Romans 7, for my inner self, for in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah, one that battles with the Torah in my mind and makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in ver my various parts. What a miserable creature I am, who will rescue me from this body bound for death. Thanks be to God. He will. Messiah, Yeshua, Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. To sum up with my mind, I'm a slave of God's Torah, but with my old nature, I'm a slave of sin's Torah. So this hidden adornment, that's what we should cultivate. That's the fashion that we should focus upon. Outward adornment, and Messianic Jews know this is not an unimportant issue. It's not irrelevant in the context of this life, but the imperishable adornment that Kepha writes about a gentle and quiet ruach. It's a virtuous garment that any follower of Messiah can wear with pride. It's something which God has judged and is ruling that it is of great value. Verse 5 says, This is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands. Kepha continues with use of what maybe we could call it holy fashion. And the focus continues to be upon, mainly here upon, in these verses, holy women. So one, she who dons an, inter an internal apparel, recommended by Kepha, will not exist in a vacuum. 
that's a pun at all, a pun having to do housework, but will not exist in a vacuum. She is the example of holy women who've adorned themselves being subordinate to their own husbands, it says. Quiet confidence in God produces an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, but it also enables submission to authority without fear that will ultimately be harmful to well-being or personhood and trust in the ultimate authority, Hashem. In verse 6, Kepha says, The way Sarah obeyed Avraham, honoring him as her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. There does not seem to be here a direct reference. Talks about Sarah to any one passage. He was thinking of her life in general. Sarah's life in general. The grammar of the preceding verse indicates a continuing pattern of conduct in one's life. So it's not necessarily thinking of what exact verse did he have in mind. In general, her, her blameless way of life. We look at Yochanan. Yochanan 7 was our Brit Hadashah reading. I'm just, that's where the... That's where the... Um, the Brit Hadashah reading earlier today was in the next chapter in Yochanan 8.31 it begins, so Yeshua said to the Judeans who trusted in them, if you obey what I say, you, then you really are my Talmudim. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are the seed of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. So what do you mean by saying you will be set free. Yeshua answered, yes, indeed. I tell you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Now a slave does not remain with a family forever, but a son does remain with it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will really be free. I know you are the seed of Abraham, yet you are out to kill me because what I am saying makes no headway in you. I say what my father has shown me, yet you do what your father has told you. They answered, our father is Avraham. Yeshua replied, if your children are Avraham, then do the things Avraham did. So they emphasize here, physical ancestry is not unimportant. He says, I know your sons are Avraham, but the most important thing about being a Ben Avraham is living in a way which Avraham would approve. Avraham was obedient to the revealed will of Hashem. When we talk about son of someone, that's a way in scripture, um, you know, son of the commandment. Bar Kokhba, in other terms, he was called somewhere positive, somewhere negative. Uh, by the way someone lives, they are, um, they are like bar mitzvah is someone who's going to live according to the commandments. It's supposed to be. Either. Plus we have our own um, compliments and insults. I mean, SOB is an insult upon a person. Um, and um, so a true son of Abraham would live the way Abraham, like Abraham. And the same goes for being a daughter of Sarah. In his commentary that David Stern, the translator of the Jewish New Testament and the complete Jewish Bible, he has a commentary on it also. He references Parashat Chaye Sarah from Midrash Tanchuma. He said, Abraham's wife honored him and called him Lord, for it is written that Sarah said, my Lord is old, which is a reference from Genesis 18, but conversely, God commanded Avraham to honor his wife by calling her princess, for that is the meaning of her Hebrew name, Sarah. It seems the, the, the um, like Kate, Shimon Kepha studied Parashat Tanchuma, or that, Parashat, excuse me, Midrash Tanchuma, or that the Midrash compiler studied Kepha. Very <laughs> common themes and emphasis here. 
We know that fear on certain levels is a positive thing. But in counseling wives about not being overwhelmed by terror, Kepha may have in mind Proverbs chapter 3, verse 24 says, When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Don't be afraid of sudden terror destruction caused by the wicked when it comes. For if you can't rely on Adonai, he will keep your foot, excuse me, if you can, I can't, great. If you can rely on Adonai, he will keep your foot from being caught in a trap. The last verse today is, um, has the emphasis mainly in these verses so far has been upon wives, and then he turns the emphasis in this section to husbands. In chapter 7, excuse me, verse 7, 1 Kepha 3, 7, your, you husbands likewise conduct your married lives with understanding. Although your wife may be weaker physically, you should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. If you, you don't, your prayers will be blocked. The first six verses, as I said, have dealt primarily with wives and its emphasis. Verse 7, Kepha turns briefly but very forcefully to husbands. What does it mean to live with one's wife with understanding or knowledge? Well, many of you may be aware, biblically speaking, and you know, in modern Hebrew, you be careful you use the words to know, K-N-O-W in the correct context, the two different ones usually used to know information. The other one is to know someone um, in other ways. So if you use it the wrong way, it can mean, you may mean the wrong thing, but it can be used to mean not limited to, but include Amanda Noah's wife, physical intimacy. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, What God wants is that you be holy, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to manage his sexual impulses in a holy and honorable manner, without giving in to lustful desires like the pagans who don't know God. No one should wrong his brother in this matter or take advantage of him, because the Lord punishes all who do such things as we have explained to you before at length. For God did not call us to live an unclean life, but a holy one. Therefore, whoever rejects this teaching is rejecting not man, but God, indeed the one who gives you Ruach HaKodesh, which is his. But what about a passage that relates more directly to a, wife, to a husband's treatment of his wife? Ephesians 5.25 says, As for husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah loved the Messianic community, and he gave himself on its behalf, in order to set it apart for God, making it clean through immersion in the mikvah, so to speak, in order to present the Messianic community to himself as a bride to be proud of, without a spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but holy and without defect. This is how husbands ought to love their wives, like their own bodies, for the man who loves his wife is loving himself. Why, no one ever hated his own flesh. On the contrary, he feeds it and takes care of it, just as the Messiah does the Messianic community. Because we are parts of his body, therefore a man will leave his, his father and mother and remain with his wife, and the two will become one. There is profound truth hidden here, which I say concerns the Messiah and the Messianic community. A man who abuses his wife, and I don't mean not Sarah, there's plenty of people who have abused spouses without necessarily laying a finger upon them. But a man who abuses his wife is not living according to knowledge. Not just not, not proper intimate relationship, not, does not have an intimate relationship with Hashem. But even more, as we shall see, who will hinder his prayer life, it says. The 
husband should let by his living together with his wife be informed and guided by proper awareness of her condition in relation to himself. Both in nature and grace. Spiritually, he should also recognize their full equality as fellow sharers in the grace of God. Lastly, let's look at just Colossians 3.19. It says, husbands, love your wives and don't treat them harshly. Society often said then, and much of society says now, to husbands especially, to do one of two things. We hear either, you either abdicate responsibility in a relationship or affirm a sense of responsibility but do it via exploitation and domination. Well, we've treaded in our society both paths, and neither one is the right path. Neither one is kosher. The man who abuses his wife also abuses God and his relationship therewith. So the path for a godly husband is to choose the godly walk, the godly halakha. The way of respect and honor for his spouse. In some sense, a weaker vessel, but not an inferior vessel. Rather, a vessel which is a fellow inheritor of the grace of life that Yeshua has given us, and that we live, that we emphasize and enjoy in this faith community. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, Rabbi.